Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Style and the Man, published in 1911. This book looks at the literary style of some of the great authors of the last 200 years. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'm truly honoured that you have chosen this podcast to help you fall asleep. Special thank you to new anchor sponsor, Melissa. Your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes and is truly appreciated. Thank you also to Grace Owens. I'm so glad the podcast helps out with your insomnia and that you have also shared it with your friends. Please send them my regards. If you're a regular listener of the podcast and find it beneficial, a great way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in your favorite podcast app. Even one sentence really helps out. You can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Boy to Sleep. You can find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the ratings. Style and the Man At the word style, the critics at once sit up and take notice. We are all sensitive to style. We either like to drift with an easy, lazy current, or we prefer to fight a turbulent, resisting tide. We enjoy contemplating the moonlight upon tranquil waters, or we find our greatest pleasure in watching the ruffian billows breaking against rough shores. These are largely matters of temperament or of mood. The attitude of many of us changes from day to day, from book to book. But at heart, we all have a preference, a prejudice in favour of certain methods of writing, while others awake our antagonism. It has probably been the experience of all of us that books that reach the library table often lie unopened for many days. And then, to our own surprise, we someday take them up, read them with delight, and wonder why we approached them so reluctantly. In the same whimsical fashion, we recur to volumes that we knew in old times, impelled by some instinct that makes us long to experience the same emotion, the same thrill, the same peace that gladdened our souls in happier days, 
There are books that fit into moods of sorrow, of loneliness, of anxiety, and others are equally identified with moods of happiness, elation, and hope. There are in our libraries, great or small, stern Gibraltars that rise gloomily before us on shelves to which we never turn with pleasure. Great writers have rarely written of style, perhaps because it is so individual, so intimate a matter, and the trick of the thing may not, except in rare cases, be communicated to the tyro. The convenient methods of absent treatment advertised by correspondent schools of authorship are of no avail in the business of style. Style can no more be taught than the shadows of clouds across June meadows or the play of wind over wheat fields can be directed or influenced by the hand of man. To grasp style much is inevitably presupposed. Grammar, sensibility, taste, a feeling for colour and rhythm of such things as these is the kingdom of style. In children, we often observe an individual and distinctive way of saying things. We all have correspondents whose letters are a joy because of their vivid revelation of the writer. In every community, there are persons much quoted for their wit or wisdom, whose sayings have a raciness and tang. The bulk of English is so enormous and increases so rapidly that we have a right to pick and choose and to hang aloof from all that does not please us. The fashion changes in literary style as in clothes, and yet, to shift the figure, the snows of yesteryear linger on the far uplands and high peaks, and they are there forever. It is a common impression that popular taste in literature is bad and growing worse. I do not myself sympathise with this idea. The complaint smells of antiquity. Every age has had its literary Jeremiahs. The wail that of making many books there is no end is older than American literature. For is it not written, many of them also which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. It would be instructive, if there were time, to review the labours of those who have first and last written on the subject of style. We might with profit and entertainment discuss the general superiority of English poetry to English prose, but this is a matter conceded, I believe by sounder critics than your orator. We might linger by the golden coasts of Greece and hearken to the voice of Plato, who says Frederick Harrison alone is faultless. We might follow Caesar's eagles into Roman territory and hear at the Sabine farm 
Ars Poetica, read by a most competent witness on this question of style. Here is a man to our liking, this Horace, and we find him eminently modern in his attitude towards the dictionary. Mortal works must perish, he says, who was born two thousand years ago. Much less can the honour and elegance of language be long-lived. Many words shall revive, which now have fallen off, and many words which are now in esteem shall fall off. If it will be the will of custom, in whose power is the decision and right and standard of language, other witnesses speaking many tongues crowd the door, but we must stick to our text. It is our mother English that now concerns us, and only a few may be allowed to testify at this session of court. You will not, I pray, take my obedicta too seriously. I beg you to deal leniently with my stupidity when I say that such prose as Addison's or Steele's has little charm for me. It is, as Mr. James might say, nice, but it lacks variety, flash, ginger, and if I prefer Swift, Defoe, or Carlyle to Milton, pray do not deliver me to the lions. As an advocate of the open shop in criticism, I insist on my right to punch and hammer at my own bench, in the corner beside yours. In thus frankly divulging my likings and aversions, I hope to quote Dr. Johnson that I am not preparing for my future life either shame or repentance. Let us assume that all the authoritative testimony on this subject is in evidence and a part of the res gesto. Newman on language in the idea of university. Spencer's philosophy of style. Certain passages from George Henry Lewis's Principles of Success in Literature. De Quincey's eloquent and stimulating essay on style. And discussions of the same fascinating subject by Stevenson, Pater, and Frederick Harrison and by Antoine Albalat in French. These we file with the clerk. And not to know Professor Walter Rayleigh's essay on style is to have missed a discussion on the subject, which is in itself a model of graceful, melodious writing, guiltless of preciosity. There must always be a difference between the style of genius that which proceeds from ordered, controlled, and directed talent. The dead level of mediocrity is easily attained in both prose and poetry, but even persons of little cultivation feel the lure of captivating speech. The world has been swayed by the power of phrase. The trumpet and drum may take hold of man's emotions, but words only can touch his mind with truth. 
the words of Jesus are marvellously simple. There were undoubtedly those among his contemporaries who could contrive more splendid orations. There were citizens of the Roman Empire, of which he was a humble citizen, who were richer in learning. Antoine Albalat, in The Travail of Style, discusses in separate chapters the literary methods of such writers of supreme rank as Pascal, Bussuet, Buffon, Montesquieu, Rousseau, La Fontaine, Victor Hugo, and Flaubert. And he conducts this discussion in an immensely interesting and original way, namely by reproducing the actual manuscripts of the great writers themselves, with the countless erasures and substitutions of words, phrases, and whole passages they made. What toilers, what galley slaves of the pen they were, one cries in amazement. The first draft is as nothing. It serves simply as a point of departure, to blot, to cover, with spider tracks of erasures and imitations. Is this the work of inspiration? The galley slave toil at the dull mechanic pen demands a critic. Yes, the writer of the book replies. When Buffon declared genius is but infinite capacity of patience, do you take him for a fool who meant to say, if the veriest dolt sits long enough on a chalk egg, he will hatch out a phoenix. No, he meant that as much inspiration of genius goes into thoughtful correction and brooding revision as into the first jet of composition. When the now more fiery, more pathetic word suggests itself, it is even more a flash of inspiration than the primary suggestion of the older and poorer one. Ah, if ever there was a book to confirm the current saying, easy writing makes hard reading, it is this. There is, as everyone knows, an apparent happy luck in writing. The curiosity that puts the inevitable word into your ink pot. I offer the suggestion that composition does not begin with the taking up of the pen that there are untraceable subconscious processes that are never idle, whose results illuminate many a treasured book. He were a rash author who would attempt to set apart his conscious felicities from his inadvertent graces. How long do you suppose Shakespeare pondered that most stupendous incident in all literature? The knocking at the gate in Macbeth. Tennyson, when questioned as to his own power over words once solemnly answered, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, implying a belief in inspiration. Veracity is the final test in all art. It makes no difference how trifling or unimportant the thing that we would utter. 
or whether we express ourselves in the cadences of the symphony, in the militant splendour of the epic, in the careless fling of some vagrant poet's tavern catch, or whether the artist writes a landscape in colours upon canvas, the test of beauty and strength is first of all the test of truth. We measure the far-shadowing spear of Achilles and weigh the gleaming sword of Arthur by the things we know to be beautiful and strong. Words may lie before us like green meadows by peaceful streams, but we must feel the softness of the turf and hear the bubble of the stream, or they fail as a vehicle, or in other departments of literature, they must sweep toward us like cavalry charges, and we must hear the rattle of scabbards and the pounding of hoofs until the drawback struck with fear at the onset, or the artist, who is like a captain over his troop, has failed of his purpose. My love for thee, wrote the poet, my love for thee shall march like armed men. The power of the printed word has always been tremendous. The authority of type is often excessive and unjustified, yet this only makes more exacting the inevitable standard of truth. Style will forever be challenged by truth. The austere higher critic, whose method is so searching and whose judgments are so exonerable. The mere bows and ruffles, the chiffon flounces of composition, are easily flung off by the literary milner. But unless they are essential to the investiture of character, they crumple and pass to the garret. It is not enough to communicate to the eye the sense of form, the outward and visible outline of a man. The shopkeeper can do that with a dummy in his show window, but words must go further and produce bone and sinew. We must be able, through the writer's magic, to clasp a hand that is quick with red blood, whose contact thrills us at a touch. This is as true in those characterizations that are the veritable creatures of realism as of those that are wrought in the mood of romance. The burden upon your romance lies, in fact, more heavily, for in his work the spectator, the auditor, the reader, can assist him little. Silas Lapham, for example, is within the range of our common experience. What the author may omit, we supply. Whereas Diatagnan rides in from a strange and unexplored land, and we must be convinced of his cleverness, his courage, his skill with the sword. When Beatrix comes down the stair to meet Esmond, we must hear the rustle of her skirts, feel the fascination of her smile, and be won by the charm of her voice. We must hear the pretty click of her slippers on the stairs, and we may say in passing that Thackeray carried style as an element of English fiction higher than it ever was carried before, 
and no one since has shaken his supremacy. Few writers of the Victorian period wielded a more flexible English than Matthew Arnold, and few writers of any period have shown greater versatility. His power of direct statement was very great, and he plunged forward to the chief facts he wished to present with the true journalist's instinct for what is interesting and important. As a controversial writer, he had few equals in his day, and many Philistines went down before his lance. The force of repetition was never more effectively illustrated than in the letters he launched against his assailants. He was a master of irony, and irony in skilled hands is a terrible weapon. The vivacious Mr. Beryl complains of the jauntiness of Arnold's style in literature and dogma, and we must confess that Arnold pinned his tic-tac on the palace windows of the bishops of Gloucester and Winchester rather too often. But Arnold had, to the touch of grace and melody, he was a master of the mournful cadence, as witness the familiar and oft-quoted paragraph on Newman at St. Mary's, with which he opens his lecture on Emerson. And even more beautiful is that passage in one of the most appealing and charming of his literary essays, The Paper on Keats, in which he thus plays upon Keats's own words, by virtue of his feeling for beauty, and of his perception of the vital connection of beauty with truth. Keats accomplished so much in poetry than in one of the two great modes by which poetry intercepts, in the faculty of naturalistic interpretation. In what we call natural magic, he ranks with Shakespeare. The tongue of Keane, he says in an admirable criticism of that great actor, and his enchanting elocution, the tongue of Keane may seem to have robbed the Hybler bees and left them honeyless. There is an indescribable gusto in his voice. In Richard, be stirring with a lark tomorrow, gentle Norfolk, comes with him as through the morning atmosphere towards which he yearns. This magic, says Arnold, this indescribable gusto in the voice, Keats himself too exhibits in this poetic expression. No one else in English poetry save Shakespeare has in expression quite the fascinating felicity of Keats. His perfection of loveliness, I think, he said humbly, I shall be among the English poets after my death. He is, he is with Shakespeare. The great distinction of Newman's style lies in its extraordinary clarity. He wrote for a select audience. His sermons even were for the scholars of his university and dealt usually with the fine points of religious philosophy. He was under scrutiny, 
the chief spokesman of one of the most remarkable movements that ever shook the Protestant world, and of necessity he expressed himself with scrupulous procession. After crystal clearness, a certain cloistral composure follows naturally as a second characteristic of his style. He was engaged upon a serious business and never trifled with it. It is unfortunate for literature that he confined himself so closely to theological controversy or to kindred subjects that have lost their hold on popular interest. For in the qualities indicated clearness and precision, and in malady, he is rarely equailed in the whole range of English prose. Religion, in his case, was not a matter of emotion but of intellect. Personal feelings flashes out so rarely in his pages that we hover with attention over those few lines in which he tells us his goodbye to Oxford, and of his farewell to Trinity College. Trinity, which was so dear to me, and which held on to its foundation, so many who had been kind to me both when I was a boy, and all through my Oxford life. Trinity had never been unkind to me. There used to be much snapdragon growing on the walls opposite my freshman's rooms there, and I had for years taken it as the emblem of my own perpetual residence, even unto death in my university. But there for a moment he was off guard, and for an instance of his more characteristic manner, for an example of that mournful music with Arnold, in the familiar paragraph to which I have referred, caught so happily, we do better to dip into such a sermon as the famous one on the theory of development, and I read from the page as it falls open. Critical disquisitions are often written about the idea which this or that poet might have in his mind in certain of his compositions and characters, and we call such analysis the philosophy of poetry, not implying thereby of necessity that the author wrote upon such a theory in his actual delineation, or knew what he was doing, but that in matter of fact he was possessed, ruled, guided by an unconscious idea. Moreover, it is a question whether the strange and painful feeling of unreality which religious men experience from time to time, when nothing seems true or good or right or profitable, when faith seems a name and duty a mockery, and all endeavours to do right absurd and hopeless, and all things forlorn and dreary, as if religion were wiped out from the world may not be the direct effect of the temporary obscuration of some master vision which unconsciously supplies the mind with spiritual life and peace. Here in America, style was first greatly realised by Hawthorne. Changing tastes and fashions have not shaken his position. 
He was our first, and he remains our greatest creative artist in fiction, and it were idle to dispute his position. His work became classic almost in his own day. He was no chance adventurer upon the sea of literature, but a deliberate, painstaking artist. Fiction has rarely been served by so noble a spirit, and fortunate were we indeed could we pluck the secret of style from his pages. In his narrative there may sometimes be dull passages, his instinct for form and proportion may seem at times, by our later tastes, to fail him. But his command of the language is never lost. His apt choice of words moves an imitator to despair, and felicity of phrase, balance, movement and colour were greatly his. The cumulative power of the scarlet letter is tremendous, and it is a power of style not less than of intense moral earnestness. There is something more inspiring in the contemplation of that melancholy figure in whose mind and heart the spirit of Puritanism dwelt as in a sanctuary, and yet he was always and above everything else an artist. He was as incapable of an inartistic idea as he was of a clumsy sentence. Sitting at the receipt of custom in the grim little village of Salem, he took toll of stranger ships than ever touched Salem wharves. Other figures in American literature must be scrutinised through the magnifying glass. Hawthorne alone looms large, as Mr. James so happily said of Balzac, Hawthorne's figure is immovable and fixed for all time. To mention Irving, Poe or Cooper on the same page is but to betray our incompetence for the office of criticism. There are kindlier and cheerfuller figures among American prose writers, but Hawthorne alone is commanding, noble, August. After Hawthorne, the prose of Lowell affords, I should say, the highest mark reached by an American writer. The main difference, and it is a difference of height, breadth, depth, the difference between them as prose writers lies in the fact that one was a creative artist and the other a critic and criticism must always be secondary. The enduring monuments of the literature of all ages were built before criticism was born. The great originals in all literature have paid little heed to criticism. The creator must plough and sow and reap. The critic may only seek the garnered harvest nibble the hay and chew his cud. The persistent efforts of critics to magnify their own importance proves their sensitiveness and the jealousy with which they guard their self-conferred prerogatives. The criticism of literature is the only business in which the witness is not called upon to qualify as to his competency. 
Failures at any game naturally turn critic. In science, we demand the critic's credentials. In literature, we all kick the sleeping lion and inadvertently twist his tail. Lau wrote with remarkable knowledge, skill and effectiveness on many subjects, and his political and literary essays are models of form and diction. He was perhaps the most cultivated man we have produced. He drew from all literatures, and not less from human experience, and he was singular among American scholars in his lifelong attention to politics. He saw American history in the making through years of great civil and military stress. He was one of the first to take the true measure of Lincoln. He wrote a magnificent prose essay on Lincoln before our martyred chief passed to the shadows. And the postscript to that essay touches, it seems to me, the higher altitudes possible in prose, and deserves to be remembered and repeated side by side with his commemoration ode. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy as we finish off this story. If you're not quite tired yet, feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing out another episode for you very soon. Good night.